Welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fospero. Today I've slipped into a dressing room at TV Centre to catch up with Dr Hilary Jones, one of Britain's most trusted GPs. He's not only been looking after viewers on Good Morning Britain with advice and medical wisdom throughout the pandemic, he's had his finger on the nation's pulse, quite literally, for the last three decades on TVAM, GMTV, Lorraine and more. And as well as keeping us up to date with developments on the pandemic and all things medical, broadcasting live into our living rooms at the crack of dawn, Dr. Hillary has just published his debut novel, Frontline, a First World War drama set on the battlefields as a deadly flu is spreading through the trenches. Hillary, it's fantastic to see you. You've been busy doing interviews this morning on your book, haven't you? It's lovely to see you, Helen. Yes, I have. So after with the studio finished this morning, we're doing some interviews about Frontline, the book. And it's been a wonderful antidote to COVID-19, writing this book. Everyone's sick to the back teeth talking about COVID-19, me particularly, because I've talked about nothing else for 18 months. But there were so many parallels between what's happening now and what happened 100 years ago that it kind of just came to me naturally to write a work of fiction. So people have been talking about frontline workers in the NHS in the last 18 months. We clapped for them on Thursday evenings on our doorsteps. The frontline workers themselves talked about working in a war zone in intensive care. So frontline, frontline, it had to be the title. And so I've set this back in the First World War, 100 years ago when we saw the last great pandemic And it's a love story of two young people who come from very different backgrounds through the class divide who meet in France during the war. And we've got elements of the war, elements of the mysterious virus of the Spanish flu in 1918. And I hope people enjoy reading it and find the the research and the timeline fascinating. And had you ever had an ambition to sit down and put pen to paper before now? I've always enjoyed writing. Back in the day, I was at school with the likes of the late Mel Smith, and we had a fantastic drama department. I enjoyed the creative skills necessary to write. I kind of lost that when I went to medical school and I was embroiled in looking after patients and things. So this was a wonderful departure from what I do on a day-to-day basis. And I got thoroughly engrossed in it and I've really enjoyed writing it. It's been well received as well, hasn't it? It has. And people have said, funnily enough, my medical colleagues were the first ones to check the research that I'd done. And the message I've got is, yep, it is accurate. It's medically accurate. Well done, mate. And other people just said they thoroughly enjoyed reading it. My mum, who's 95, who was great inspiration to me and has been a great reader, read the chapter where this young couple consummate their romance. And she said, it was beautifully written and I think every teenager should read it. <laughs> well, gosh, you can't get much much better review <laughs> than so that. <laughs> yeah, I bet you were completely relieved. Yeah. And was it quite fascinating doing the research and looking back into the Spanish flu? And did that help you with perhaps some kind of understanding of what we've all been going through in the last 18 months? Absolutely. It was almost certainly a virus, a flu virus that mutated from animals, from pigs probably, into humans. And it had a devastating effect on young, fit, able-bodied people. It was almost as if their immune reaction made it worse. It was the immune reaction which killed them. And this was in the pre-antibiotic era. So that started probably in northern France, spread to the American soldiers, went to the States and spread throughout the world. It devastated communities as far as Samoa and Alaska. No one had any immunity to it. 
and it raged for a couple of years and then mysteriously disappeared. And we live in hope that this pandemic will go away as quickly, relatively speaking, as that one did. Can we take any lessons from 1918? Absolutely. One lesson we should learn is that if it spread as quickly then, before we had commercial aviation, we need to remember that, you know, that is how it came here to these shores in the first place from China. And we do need to control mass gatherings and the mixing of people. That's how the virus spreads. And whilst we will live with this for some time, and we'll have high, high case numbers. We hope that hospitalizations will level out and stay fairly low. We hope that we won't see a new variant, which is resistant to the current vaccines. But there are many unknowns still, and we shouldn't take the fact for granted that it's just going away. Most of the podcasts that we've done in this series have almost on purpose been a bit COVID free just because, <laughs> like you said, everybody's been sick of talking mm -hmm. about it and, and needed a bit of an escape, if you like. But your last 18 months of your life, you've been immersed in the pandemic. What has the last 18 months been like for you? Well, professionally speaking, as a medical journalist, it's been the most fascinating and professionally challenging time of my medical career, really, a global pandemic. So it's been hugely interesting to cover and it's kept me extremely busy, but I just wish it hadn't taken the pandemic to make me this busy. There are better ways of being busy. But yeah, it's been fascinating to have to be across all the, the data that changes on a daily basis and to try to deliver messages which are in the public interest and keep a perspective about things keep an honest, open guideline as to how we should be behaving in a pandemic to keep tragedies to a minimum. In May, you were on air for Good Morning Britain with Susanna Reid and Kate Garraway and Ben Shepherd. I was absolutely gripped to hear you describe how, as a nation, we really were not ready for this, whether that be in terms of track and trace or PPE. Yet plans had been in place, hadn't they, years before? There had been a, an exercise to plan for a viral pandemic. Scientists had been warning that it could happen at any time, but there wasn't a widespread belief in the scientific community that it would happen. I mean, on these shores, we've seen other coronaviruses. We saw MERS, we saw SARS, but it was contained to Asia. We saw bird flu, didn't come nearer than Turkey. And I think there was this intuitive sense that we'd be safe here that somehow it wouldn't come this far. And then suddenly we had our first two cases that arrived on the South Coast and then we had an exponential rise and now we have every day 40,000 cases. So everyone was taken a bit by surprise. The exercise that we did still didn't provide enough PPE. It didn't provide a lockdown of the borders quickly enough. It didn't protect residents of care homes and it didn't really protect our NHS effectively enough. So hopefully that will have been noted and there's always the possibility of another pandemic of a different virus or a bacteria which is resistant to antibiotics we currently have, which is another major threat to global health. We only have created about two new antibiotics in the last 10 years, and we're quickly running out of ones that are effective against common bacteria. So it is a worry. How worried should we be about that? Well, I think uh, we've put in place measures to discourage people from demanding antibiotics when they're not clinically needed. And doctors are under a lot of encouragement to not prescribe them unnecessarily. However, 
the way the health service works with huge numbers of patients making huge demands on the NHS, the easiest thing is for a GP to get rid of a patient by giving them an antibiotic. It's not the best thing to do. It's not in their interest. It's not in society's interest. And I suppose doctors have to be a bit stronger in resisting that. Uh, we should use them as a last resort. We saw some wonderful scenes, didn't we, on a Thursday night, the NHS really being heralded for the sterling efforts they put in way above and beyond what one would expect. You must have seen some fantastic sights in the NHS through the last 18 months. Spoken to some wonderful people. One of the most moving things I saw was a nurse in intensive care, exhausted at the end of her 12-hour shift and going to the supermarket to get food for her family and finding the shelves bare. And she was in tears. I just thought, this is crazy. Why can't we look after those staff that look after us? You know, why is there no system in place to make sure that the ones who work so hard get some perks and some protection from the people who go and buy a hundred rolls of toilet paper because they think they might run out? What is it about toilet paper that's so important in the pandemic? One of the best cartoons I've seen in recent months were two Martians on the moon looking at Earth. And they're saying, we're not sure what the humans died of, but they had the cleanest arses I've ever seen. <laughs> I thought that was quite telling. It is quite telling. And it, there was something quite tragic, wasn't there, about the greed and how when there's an emergency, people just seemed so greedy, buying in bulk and then thinking about our elderly neighbours or people mm. working on the front line in the NHS not having enough, whether that be <laughs> toilet roll or, yeah. or food. This one of the themes in my book, Frontline, the way human beings behave in wars and pandemics. Some people become extremely kind, thoughtful, altruistic, caring, looking after their elderly neighbours, making sure people have got enough food, going to get their medicines and what have you, volunteering for vaccine rollouts, volunteering to come back from retirement and work. Other people become vile. They become very self-obsessed and selfish. They lock themselves away. I'm all right, Jack, attitude tribal with their anti-vaccine spiels and their conspiracy theories, not willing to listen and, and take on board the science, not wanting to trust scientists, not wanting to trust governments. And I worry about the level of ignorance about science that people have. I think back in the day, and it is reflected in the older generation all wanting the vaccines, they grew up with infection. They saw kids die of infection on a regular basis. The younger generation haven't seen that. They think they're safe, but they're not. No, they're not. It's funny what you say about people stockpiling and things. My grandparents were the kindest, most generous people you ever wish to meet and would certainly have been very kind in the war years. But one of the knock-on from the war the First World War for Nana and Grandad was if you opened their sideboard, there was a stockpile of Tate and Lyle sugar and Indian Prince loose tea. And I think that was from rationing days. So it wasn't Absolutely. stealing it from other people, but my Nana never wanted to be without her sugar and a loose leaf tea. That's We've also right. got to remember though, that during the pandemic, your colleagues in the NHS put their lives on the line, not just because they didn't already always have the suitable equipment, but just because the virus was such an unknown. And you lost colleagues, didn't you, in the NHS? Yeah, many hundred died. Um, some who'd uh, volunteered to come back to work and help, some who were just doing their ordinary jobs, but the viral load that they were exposed to when so many patients were coming in was just too difficult for them to resist and their immune systems couldn't cope with it. And tragically, we lost too many. 
I hope they get some form of compensation, their families do, down the line, because they really were the ones that sacrificed the most. And scientifically, was it a fascinating deep dive for you when the vaccination started coming out? Because presumably you've got a clear understanding of what's in them, how they work, are they safe? Was that quite sort of challenging and good for you to look into that side Absolutely. of Absolutely. I mean, vaccination has saved millions of lives in the last 50 years. We have eradicated smallpox. We have saved tens of thousands of people from the paralysis caused by polio. We have saved children from being born deaf and blind from rubella, people dying from measles, whooping cough, diphtheria. These are part of the routine childhood immunization program. So the principle of vaccination has been there not just recently, but for centuries, really, going right back to cowpox and the smallpox story. But the Oxford scientists and other scientists were able to create a vaccine against this new virus quickly because they were able to streamline all the aspects that are required to make an effective vaccine and to make a safe one. So at the same time that they were creating it, they were doing the trials. So they were happening in parallel and they produced a safe and effective vaccine so quickly. And, you know, we should take our hats off to them. I mean, they did an incredible job and it's already saved hundreds of thousands of lives just in this country. So they will have to tweak the vaccine. There will be variants and there will be mutations. They'll have to tweak it. We'll have to have boosters, but we should never forget the amazing work they've done. When I worked at, well, I guess it was GMTV, wasn't it, in our yeah. day, but here at ITV, whenever we stopped you in the corridor, I always felt there was a temptation. So, oh, Dr. Lee, I've got a rash on my ankle or, <laughs> you know, my little boy's got nappy rash or whatever. And you've always helped everybody just because that's your nature and who you are. But Kate Garraway, wow, yeah. you've been a big support to Kate and her husband, Derek's been probably one of the most severely affected by COVID of everybody in Britain and is still very unwell. How have you supported Kate and how has she carried on being so strong and stoic? She's been amazing. I took a phone call from her when she was most worried about Derek when he was still at home. And I asked to speak to Derek directly and it became very quickly apparent how breathless he was. And I said, this is the time to phone the ambulance right now. And he went straight into hospital. And unfortunately, he became very sick indeed and was on a ventilator for a long time. He's still very sick. And Kate is incredible in the way she continues to support the children, to work and to support her husband who needs round-the-clock care. She is also constantly aware, much to her credit, that other people are facing similar situations. So she talks about Derek, not for herself, but for the benefit of other people. And I think to share that situation, which must be so emotionally draining and exhausting in order to help other people is just fantastic. So I'm there to offer advice when she needs it. And I'm very happy to do that. And you're right, I do corridor consultations a lot at work because people can't get to see their GP. And sometimes I say, this is something you really ought to go and see your GP about. And of course, I point them in the right direction. But with a corridor consultation comes a responsibility. And it would be very easy to diagnose or treat without knowing too much about the ailment. So one has to exert a level of caution when as, doing it. As well as corridor consult, though. I mean, you are probably one of the most famous GPs in Britain. So do you find wherever you go and when you're off duty, 
people are very keen to share their ailments with you. <laughs> Absolutely. The last time I was on a train, on a crowded train, I have to tell you, the ticket collector not only wanted to see my ticket, but wanted to know what's involved in a colonoscopy, much to the interest of the other uh, passengers. <laughs> and there's only so much you can tell him on a crowded carriage. Nothing ever surprises me. It sometimes, however, surprises me when someone draws up a chair in a restaurant when I'm having a meal with my wife. I'll stop doing that, I promise. <laughs> well, tell Dee stop doing it. Good, good. Glad <laughs> to hear it. But people think I'm flattered, you know, to be asked. You know, there's always a way of being accessible and pleasant without being rude. Oh, you're always pleasant. But what's great about you doing all your medical training, which we'll delve a bit deeper in, in a sec, is that if you were in a surgery Monday to Friday, you would help a certain amount of people. But actually... Being on television, your wisdom and advice has actually reached millions. And, you know, I'm thinking this week of Sarah Harding, sadly, passing away from breast cancer, age 39. And there you are, you're on screen and you're giving advice. And it's advice that tens of thousands of women, I think, across Britain will have appreciated this week. Yes, it's actually, it's a good thing to react to headline news like that because you've got a captive audience right there. There'll be women the same age as Sarah Harding, age 39, thinking, oh my goodness, that's so young. How big is my risk? And I think to be able to use the platform of television or radio, print, whatever, to reach a lot of people is a great responsibility, which I've taken very seriously. So if I can say it is a tragedy, I met her, she was a lovely girl. It's important to realise that only 5% of breast cancers occur in the under 40s. It's important to realise that what the chances are about 1 in 230 of developing breast cancer that young. Most women who die of breast cancer will be over 60, 70, 80, with a peak incidence over 90. So the age is the major factor. So for younger women who don't have a family history, it's important to examine your own breasts, be familiar with the texture, the size, the contour, and look for any change and report it straight away. And I think those messages are good. One of the things I've enjoyed in my career is people writing in saying, watch the program on prostate, watch the program on skin cancer. Had it not been for what we heard on the program, might not be alive today. So that's what television can do really well. And it's very satisfying. And I'm just a small cog in that big wheel. I didn't realise that you grew up in Hammersmith, which is a stone's throw from Shepherd's Bush, where I ah. live. And I also realised that having known you since, I think, 1997, I don't really know how you got into medicine in the first place or much about your childhood or <laughs> no, growing do up. I, to you be don't fair. either. <laughs> well, how on earth did this happen, I, I Hilary? Did, I did the wrong A-levels. I did English, history and French. And then suddenly realised, you know, what do I want to do with those? And my dad was a GP and, and said, you should be a doctor. See, I didn't uh, know that. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know your dad was a GP. But I also know that he used to work 365 days a year, 24-7. And at the time, I didn't fancy that much. Anyway, I did my A-levels and then I thought I'd have a crack at medicine. So I had to do a conversion course to science, which was utter hell. And I wasn't very good at science. But when I got to the wards and I was on the bedside of patients, it came much more naturally and I could use my communication skills to talk to patients in their own language. That's a good bedside manner, isn't so it? That, You're good at the bedside was, manner. That was good bedside manner. <laughs> Lousy academic doctor, but good bedside manner. And for me, that was the satisfaction of medicine and that's what it has been. So that's how I got into medicine. And then from there, I thought, well, I can see one patient in the surgery at a time. 
But these messages should be available to everybody. And that's when I wrote to Mr. Gingell at TVAM and said, give us a job. Really? You know, and I did he this. say yes straight away? No, he said, come and meet us. I like your ideas. We're thinking of having one doctor rather than lots of different academic professors who speak in jargon. So I met him and they tried me out for two weeks and the rest is history. Gosh, so you've been here since... 79. 79. It's really it's not 79. It is. TVM wasn't 79, was it? No, TVM... Uh, Sorry, 89. 89. 89. So my memory's going. I'm yeah, that old. Gosh, you are. Do you need a cup of tea and <laughs> yeah, a biscuit or something like that? <laughs> now, you see, you've missed a, a key bit out because from qualifying and working Royal Free, I think you're at, weren't you? Yes. You, didn't you go somewhere remote yes, and did. exotic to do what? I'm not sure. I went to the most isolated inhabited island in the world with a population of about 300 called Tristan de Cunha which is a British dependency in the South Atlantic and takes about 10 days to get there on a fishing trawler from Cape Town. I was there for about a year and I had to deal with anything that cropped up because there's no airport, there's no airstrip. The boat comes three times a year and that's it. So whether it was dental work, veterinary work, if someone had an appendix or had a baby, muggins would have to deal with it without any help. So you delivered babies and all sorts no, of stuff? No, I actually didn't. It, during that year, no one had a baby. But you would have done had somebody I would have had. had to have done it. You know, we, we had a little hospital and certainly I operated on sheep. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I took teeth out, not very well. We had a tuberculosis scare, a respiratory tuberculosis scare. I did x-rays on everybody and did sort of minor surgery. Nothing major happened. No one died. I wouldn't do it now because it would be too scary. <laughs> but what made you go and how, and how um, did you find this little place in the middle of nowhere? Well, it was advertised in the British Medical Journal. I'd had no break from A-levels through to qualifying as a doctor and then two years in a teaching hospital working flat out. And I just wanted some adventure. I wanted to get away from a hospital. I wanted to spread my wings a bit, go overseas, get some experience and some fresh air and that seemed like the right place to go to go and what did dad think as a gp was he pleased that you followed in his footsteps oh i think so yeah my dad was a very popular gp in chiswick devoted to his job and i think he was pleased that i went into medicine but when i went to tv he thought it was rather frivolous <laughs> didn't talk <laughs> did to he? me for a week or two he did, <laughs> did he? actually yeah. <laughs> was he proud eventually yeah i think so good yeah so being in television for all those years I don't want to say all those years, it's the same for me, although I'm still only 37, as you well know, Dr. Hillary. Um, best moments, funniest moments, hairy moments. Oh, plenty of those. Hairiest moments, probably abseiling down the BT Tower, which I did a couple of years ago. That's quite high, you know. Anyway, I survived. Certainly great moments in the Australian outback with the Flying Doctor Service going up in the plane and going out into the bush and seeing what the doctors were doing out there for the local communities. Lesotho was quite hairy as well. Very mountainous Lesotho. So when you land, you've got an airstrip which is about 100 yards long. And if you don't stop in time, you fall off the edge. That was quite hairy. Then freeing lions in South Africa for the Born Free Foundation. I've had some fantastic times. Funniest moments? Oh, plenty. God, I'm trying to think. Um, I've made a few errors. 
I remember uh, insulting some uh, some poor lady on an outside broadcast. I think I called her common. Um, <laughs> what I meant was her condition was common. Oh, a <laughs> <So, laughs> nice one. Yeah, nice one. Uh, sort of things that happen on live TV. There have been lots of funny moments. I'd need notice of notice for else. Notice yeah. for funny moments. But you've also worked with a fantastic team. And also there is nothing quite like live television. It's unexpected, isn't it? Sure. I like it. I prefer it. As you know, when, when you do records, you have to, they have to sound perfect because it's a pre-record and you can do them again and again. With live TV, it's over in an instant. So it's very spontaneous and people know it's live because you, and when you are and you make a heart, you get through halfway a sentence, get halfway through a sentence and then start again. But that's normal life. That's how people talk. And I like the necessity to react quickly to something. And if people can't do that, I don't think they should be talking about science. There's such a thrill though, isn't there, of coming in, doing your job and going home and it's done. What happened live has happened and sure. you move on to the next day. Yes. So if it was a good day or a bad day, it doesn't really matter because it's gone out. And I think that's what the viewers really like, particularly on a programme like you're on and on Lorraine. It's the viewers feel part of it, don't they? So they feel like you're normal and they can come up and say hello to you on the street. Sure. And I think the liveness of that is part of that because it's not recorded and polished. You are Dr. Hillary and you are as you are. And that's what you see is what you get. No, absolutely. And uh, people often remember the little quirks that are real. So they might be listening to this issue or that issue or that debate and this debate. But what they remember is the things that are unexpected. So if somebody makes a faux pas, if somebody makes a risque joke, they will remember that. If someone makes a mistake, they'll remember that. I was once driving in to talk about a new piece of medical research and I had a puncture. It was pouring with rain. I phoned in to say, look, I won't make it into the studio because I've got a puncture and I'm waiting for the AA to come and help me out. And they said, well, can you do the interview live on your phone? Yeah, I can talk about the research on the phone. Sure. So when they came to me on the phone, they were saying, well, how's the puncture going? Well, you, the, the man's jacked the car up and he's getting soaking wet and he's putting a new wheel on now. And then I talked about the research. No one remembers what I was talking about. They only remember that I was driving in and had a puncture. And that's real life, isn't it? It is. And I bet that's the thing that people stop you in the street and said, did you get fixed? And was Absolutely. It okay? Absolutely. No one can remember the actual research because it wasn't that interesting compared to the fact, oh, a presenter's coming in and he, he's got a puncture. But that's because people feel like they know you and people like Lorraine as well. I mean, you've worked with Lorraine many, many years. Sure. But people feel exactly the same about her, don't they? That Absolutely. They feel that she's the friend on the screen in the morning. I think one of the strange of Breakfast TV is that we are a family of presenters. Contrary to popular belief, there are no huge egos. There really aren't. Some people might pretend to have a massive ego, but we're all nice people and we all get on really well, which is lovely. And I think viewers are clever enough to pick that up. They know if they like people and people would either last the, the course because people are in tune with them and, and they believe what they say, or they'll quickly be got rid of. And one of the things about Breakfast TV, especially ITV, for me, has been that camaraderie and that sense of family. 
I think as well that camaraderie comes from being together at four o'clock in the morning. The show doesn't start at six in the morning. It starts, well, for some of the technical staff, it starts much earlier. But for people like you and me, when I was here, four in the morning, there is definitely a camaraderie between people who work those kinds mm. of hours because you're all permanently jet lagged. And it is a team, isn't it? It's a real team pulling together at that time of day. Absolutely. So it's quite cohesive. It's a relatively small team. We share each other's hardships as well as the great times. And then when we do get together, which is unfortunately very rare for a party, it's a big party. It's something that we've been looking forward to. Piers has gone. Piers looked after me when I was a baby reporter for a national news agency and was very kind. But I guess that changes the dynamic too, doesn't it? Yeah, of course. I mean, Piers is unique. He's a fantastic journalist, very clued up. And of course, he has strong opinions, but that's what makes him special. His view is, why be bland if you're a presenter on TV? Let's ask secondary questions to politicians. Let's not just be satisfied with the first answer. Let's probe a little bit and get to the nitty gritty. And I think that's very admirable. It's a great quality. And he's prepared to take the brickbat and the flak like everybody else. But he's an agent provocateur. He knows he's going to be Marmite. People love him or hate him, but whichever, they'll watch him. And that's why he's unique. The show has given you some remarkable opportunities within the show, but also outside the show. And I'm thinking of you pulling on some ice skates <laughs> and twirling around on Dancing on Ice. How was that experience for you? Amazing. I started right at the beginning, really not able to stand up on skates. And after six weeks, I was about the same. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw some pictures of you at the beginning looking quite Bambi-esque, yeah, sort of legs going in different directions. So, to be fair, I was a complete beginner. And after a little while, just to be doing any kind of dance routine on ice was incredible. And I was really enjoying it towards the latter stage. But there comes a time when you just can't learn that fast. And it was time for me to go. And I was desperate to go at six weeks because I just, I knew I couldn't progress much further from there. But it was a great experience. The only downside was having to wear a shirt which does up with poppers underneath. Why? What was the problem with that? It was a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Stops the shirt riding up, you see. <laughs> I see. You're not wearing one now, are <laughs> no, you? I'm not. No, I'm just just funny checking. enough, never again. <laughs> <laughs> just checking. What did Dee, your partner, think to you? Oh, she, was, on ice? she was really pleased that I got the chance to do it and was incredibly supportive because she is a dancer teacher. So she was able to give me some help with just some posture and some moves. The trouble is it's such a steep learning curve. And every time you fall on the ice, it's like falling on concrete. I think all of us got injured. However, it was a great experience and I don't regret doing it. Good, good, good. So how do you switch off when you're not here and you're not giving medical advice and sorting out the nation? What's your idea of just chilling and relaxing? I think two things. Exercise has always been a great antidote to me to stress. So exercise in, in any form, whether it's, you know, outside in the garden with a chainsaw or going for a run or windsurfing or whatever, preferably with the kids and D. And the other thing would be a nice glass of wine, an Amarone de la Volpolicella or a nice uh, cloudy bay would be just the job. Oh, nice. You're tempting me now. It's sunny outside. Maybe that's what we should go and that's do now. And what, what next, Hilary? Are you going to do some more writing? Or? Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed this novel immensely and I've got to the stage where I can develop the characters further. I'd like to keep the family developing and evolving. 
I want to write about the period between the wars and then the Second World War. I think there's quite a bit of material there. So if the first novel is a success, this is a nice little hobby I've just found for myself. I can see you as an author. I think it's nice that you've added author to your resume. It right. suits you, I think. Thank you for chatting to you today. I've actually written down, we'll have a drink next time rather than me text when I have a medical dilemma. So that fitted in quite nicely well, with your lovely. idea for a glass of wine. Definitely. So shall we do that next Let's time? Let's definitely do that. Good. You've been listening to Dr. Hilary Jones, who, as I've just said, can now add author to his resume. His debut novel, Frontline, is out now online and in all good bookshops. Don't forget, download our podcast at convex.podbean.com or you can search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts or just ask Alexa. I'll be back next week with another great guest. So see you then. Thank you.